Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. We talked about last week that our theme, our theme is witness. And what we really want to emphasize is that it's not so much about you going out and sharing the gospel, which is a big part of it. But I think the most central part is that every single one of us, we will be able to witness the beauty and the person of Jesus Christ. Because everything flows out of that. Your relationship with God is the most important thing. You can serve a lot. You can do a lot of great things. But if your relationship with God is not a priority, it is going to affect everything else that you do. So we're praying that throughout this whole year with the theme of witness, that we will be able to witness the glory of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God. We can be eyewitnesses of those things in our lives and in other people's lives. And then out of that, that we will then proclaim and be a witness of who God is and who Jesus Christ is. And so that's our hope and prayer. So that's why we're starting off this whole new series just called Witness. We're going to keep on reinforcing the theme throughout this year. And so what we're going to do is we're going to study the book of Mark. And I'm going to give you a quick overview. Uh, I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as possible because there's a lot of stuff that I have to explain about the background, about this letter, why this is a significant letter in the gospel accounts and in the Bible, and why it's going to be relevant for us today as we talk about the importance of this idea of Jesus Christ has already prepared the way for us to experience him in a powerful way. So let me just go ahead and jump into this. And as we study this book of Mark, we're going to divide this gospel into five parts. And you'll see this as we kind of uh, cover each of the five parts. And it's going to cover like maybe three, some chapters for each of the parts. But we're going to try to go through every single verse and expound on it and help you to understand this, uh, this book in the Bible. I'm excited because it's going to help you to be more Bible literate as we've been talking. We are living in a generation that is Bible illiterate. A lot of times when we talk to people, it's just our own opinions, but it's not rooted in the Word of God. We want every single person who comes into those doors in our church, or if you're listening online, that you will be Bible literate. You understand God and the world around you through God's Word. Not through your opinions, not through your preferences, but it will be through the Word of God. That's why it's important that we study this together. We're giving you notes on this. We're reinforcing it by studying it in life group. Everything we do in our church is a purpose. Nothing is in its own island or entity by itself. Life group is connected to Sunday. Sunday is connected to some of the bigger events that we do. The LCGs and all the other stuff we have in our church, they're all intertwined as a, in our church. That's why there's a direction in which we go to as a church. Some of us like to do the a la carte. Oh, I like this about this church. I like this about this fellowship. But I want to encourage you to commit to a church. If this is not the church you're going to commit to, then commit to whatever church you will find that that will be the place that you will be rooted in. And that's what we're cheering you on for because we're not here to build the largest church. We just want you to experience God and to be rooted so that you could be a blessing and produce the fruits that you need to. So I'm encouraging some of us to be a part of what God is doing. And we want to invite you to be a part of that right here in our church. If not, then once again, no hard feelings. We, we, there's incredible churches here in Hong Kong. I'm going to be actually speaking with some of these other pastors in Hong Kong at a conference in Singapore. 
And so these are incredible communicators, incredible people, incredible churches. So check out the other churches and find a place where you can say, this is where I want to commit and be rooted in. And I pray that by God's grace, uh, he will allow you to find one. And if it's our church, then we praise God. We pray that how many number of years that you have here, that you will experience life transformation because that's our vision and we want to uh, encourage all of us to experience that. So we want to break up the book of Mark into five sections. The first section is the preparation. This is where we're going to start from Mark chapter 1, verse, verse 1 and go all the way to chapter 3, verse 6 because it's all talking about this preparation of Jesus Christ and what he was called to do. And then we're going to break it up into the second part, which is a proclamation. You will notice in chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to chapter 8, verse 26, it's all about the proclamation of the kingdom of God and why that is very significant to what Jesus was preaching and teaching and verifying in terms of the miracles and the acts of God's power that he demonstrated. The third part is the presentation in Acts chapter 8, verse 27 through chapter 10, verse 52, because he's going to present to us this concept of the suffering servant and the son of man. And I'll talk a little bit about that today. And he's presenting himself as being not only the son of God, the Messiah, but he's presenting himself to be the son of man. And there's a significance why you will see this phrase son of man in the book of Mark compared to all the other books, gospels in the Bible. The fourth section we're going to look at is the prediction. Mark chapter 11, verse 1, all the way to chapter 14, verse 25. Because this is where we get towards the Passion Week. And this is when he's talking about his death that is imminent. He talks about how he's predicting that he's going to suffer in the hands of man. And he will die. And the third day he will re uh, resurrect again from the dead. And so this whole several chapters here... We're going to be looking at some of the things that he has predicted about himself. And the last section is the passion, which is Mark chapter 14, verse 26 through chapter 16, verse 20. And it's going to lead us all the way up to April, right along that passion. We, we timed it. Pastor Bo and I, we timed it so that it will come at during that time of actual passion week, lead us to Good Friday and all the way to Easter. So these are the five sections that we're going to look at. And hopefully after we study this book, not only hearing it on Sundays, but as you discuss it in life group, that there will be deep change as we appreciate and worship and see the worthiness of who Jesus Christ is. So here's my desire for every single one of you. If you're going to be coming week after week, hearing the word of God, th there are three things that I, I really desire to see by April. And as we finish studying this book in the book of Mark, the first thing is this. I pray that it will deepen your love for Jesus Christ. If there's anything that I would love to see is that every single one of us who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ, your love for Jesus will be that much deeper and that much greater. That's my hope and prayer, that you will not put your foundation on anything else but on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. May you love him more. May you worship him more. The second thing is we will, I'm praying that we will develop a stronger understanding of the gospel. Now, I know that many of you know it intellectually, but as I said many times before, it's what we say, what we do, how we think really explains if we have a human paradigm or the gospel paradigm. 
And so one of my biggest prayers is that as we go over through the book of Mark, that there will be this uh, sense of stronger understanding of the gospel message. It's, it has to be developed. It has to be trained as it's being taught. So we're hoping that you will be able to have this deeper and develop this gospel understanding. The third thing is that I'm praying that we will devote ourselves to be a witness as we live for God's kingdom. Because when you start seeing all the things that Jesus did, when you begin to see Jesus for who he is, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, when you see these things, I pray that it will flip your life upside down, and from there, you will witness to the world of all the things that God is doing. So these are the three things I'm hoping and praying for each and every single one of us as we go through this series together. So let me go ahead and give you some background on the book of Mark. This is important because it will give us a context to understand what Mark was trying to say all throughout the 16 chapters that he was writing. The, there, there's going to be several things that I want to mention here about the book of Mark so that you will understand how to approach this. The first thing is this. The gospel of Mark was written by Mark around 64 A.D. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, is he one of the apostles? And I would say, no, the, it, it is more clear through even in 1 Peter, because there's a mention of Mark, that Mark was probably a friend of the apostle Peter. So as they hung out together, that he shared a lot of different things about who Jesus Christ was. And from there, he was able to write the story and the life of Jesus Christ. Now, most scholars believe that Mark wrote this book during the time of the Roman persecution uh, with Nero. So if you know anything about history and the timeline, you realize that in 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And then if you think about when um, Peter and Paul died, it was around 64 AD. So during the time of Nero, that's why they framed this book from 60 AD to about uh, 70 AD. And what they did was they realized that Peter and Paul, they died around 64 AD. And therefore, they said as soon as Peter died, uh, that's when Mark began to write this book to carry on the legacy. So that's why it is mostly accepted by scholars that this book was written at 64 AD. The second thing that I want you to realize, the background of the book of Mark, is that the book of Mark is the shortest of the four books of the gospel. Now, this is significant because when you look at all the other books, whether it's Matthew, Luke, or John, you will realize that uh, it's much longer. There's more detail in those things. And that's why many scholars believe that Matthew and Luke and even John used the book of Mark as their primary source, and they filled in with extra information that Mark did not have experience about. The, the third thing that I want to note here is the gospel of Mark has several themes. Now, I need to go over these themes because you're going to see this again and again. If you could understand some of these themes, you realize the purpose of this letter and why it's significant, not only for during that time, but why it's significant for us at this time. Let me go over some of the several themes that are written in this book that you'll see over and over again. The first one is this, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Mark establishes that Jesus is the Son of God, and what he does is he begins to lead the reader 
throughout all the different events of Jesus and what the disciples experienced of him. And it begins to show his life, the life of Jesus, the death, the resurrection, and now showing the purposes of God as the redeemed people of God, that God was, from the beginning of time, wanting to redeem all men and women. So you will see this theme that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the anticipated Messiah that was to come. Another theme that you will see here is that Jesus Christ is the suffering servant. There are many titles for Jesus throughout this book and even in the other Gospels. But the main title that, the, that Mark uses when you read this book is the title of Son of Man. Now, many of you will not really know the difference or it's not going to make sense to you, so it's important that you understand this. The idea of Son of Man, the reason why it's significant is because it emphasizes the humanity of Jesus Christ. Yes, He is a Son of God, but He is also titled as the Son of Man because as many of you know that Jesus was man and He was God at the same time. But yet He did not sin the way we do. And that's why Mark was trying to write this letter to help people who are not believers or those who are Gentile background to understand the humanity of Jesus Christ. And that's why when we hear the Son of Man, you will see this idea of submission to God's will as well as obedience to the will of the Father, especially as He suffered on the cross. Here's the third theme that you will come across in this book. The gospel was also for the Gentiles. This is a very important part of this book. And the reason why is because Mark was writing this gospel to primarily the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And one of the ways you can see this is that when you read this book and we study together, there aren't a lot of quotations from the Old Testament. The gospel that has the most quotation of the Old Testament is the book of Matthew, because Matthew had a Jewish background. Luke was a medical doctor, but he was also trained up in some of the teachings uh, as a young kid, and same with John. So one of the things you will notice is the book of Mark has the least quoted Old Testament references because there was a purpose behind it because this letter was written to those who did not have a Jewish background. The important thing, not only that, is that this message of the gospel, the good news, is for all people. That it's not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. And it's for the stranger who are not part of the family of God. And you'll see this theme over and over again, which is one of the greatest motivations for us to then share the gospel because now we've been made into part of this family of God. And there are others who are estranged from God that we want to invite them in as we witness through our lives, through our community, that Jesus Christ rules and reigns. And the last thing that you will see over and over again is that there's an encouragement in the midst of persecution. As I mentioned earlier, this was written most likely in Rome during the persecution of Nero. And as you know, the central government resided in Rome. And if you look at the book of Romans that we studied, you realize that Paul referenced a lot to suffering and hardships and trusting in God. And so what Mark was trying to do was he was preparing the Christians in Rome and probably other places around the world who are facing persecution 
and what does it mean for them to live their lives for Jesus Christ and a follower of Jesus. So these are the four themes that you're going to see over and over again in this book that we'll be constantly repeating. So the bottom line is this. If I could just summarize the background. The bottom line is there's this beautiful picture of Jesus who is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that came who was the son of God, but also the son of man because he wanted us to relate to his humanity, but yet he did not sin. And therefore we need to turn to him for salvation because he died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice so that we can receive forgiveness of sins through his death and his resurrection. And even through Jesus' suffering and death on the cross, what it does is it reveals God's heart for all the nations, not just the Jews, but for all the nations. And that's what I'm excited about as we talk about just reaching nations. How do we do that? I pray they will be rooted in understanding the gospel message. So today, the thing that I want you to take home with you, the one thing is simply this, that we can live for Jesus each day because he has prepared the way. So here's Jesus. He's preparing the way for us for not only salvation, but for us to live our lives for him. So every single day, we have the power to be able to live for Jesus Christ. So we can live for Jesus each day because he has prepared the way. I've broken up these several chapters, or excuse me, paragraphs, into two parts. And I think it's, you'll see this, it will be very clear as I expound on this. The first thing that I want to talk about as we talk about how Jesus has prepared the way and how that enables us to live every single day for him. The first thing is you have to understand is the proclamation of Jesus opens the way. That the proclamation of Jesus opens the way. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 and 3 as we talk about this. Like I said, if you have your Bibles, you'll notice that what I'm going to cover, verses 1 through 13, is broken up into several paragraphs. And I'm going to try to coalesce some of them together so you can see the continuity of the flow of what's going on. So we're going to look at the first 13 verses. So let's first read verses 1 through 3. This is what the Word of God says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Let me talk a little bit about these three verses. Mark starts his gospel by proclaiming who Jesus is and what was written about him. The gospel of Jesus Christ is simply the good news. That's what the gospel means. If you translate it in the original language, it simply means good news. So the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ is about who he is and what he has done. I want you to notice the name Jesus Christ and the title Son of Man or Son of God. So I want to talk a little bit about these two titles or these two names that you see here. I want to first talk about the intention. What is the intention? Why did Mark write these titles for Jesus? You need to understand that Jesus is the personal name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It has the same meaning in the Hebrew as Joshua. And Joshua in the Hebrew means Yahweh is our salvation or Yahweh is salvation. So that's why whenever you hear the word Jesus, it is the 
Greek translation of the Hebrew, which is Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. The name Christ is the Hebrew equivalent because that word Christ is a Greek word, but it's the Hebrew equivalent of Messiah or the anointed one. So you see the name Jesus Christ. It simply means that here is this personal name of Jesus, that God is salvation. And then Christ, what that simply means is that he is the Messiah and the anointed one. Therefore, we see God's intent of sending his son, who is the Messiah, or the anointed one, who will bring salvation to us. That's why when Mark says the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of this Messiah, the anointed one who has come to give us salvation. Now, I want to talk about not only the intent of the title and the name of Jesus Christ, but I want you to understand the intimacy of this. The title Son of God expresses the uniqueness of Jesus and his unique relationship with God the Father. I don't know if you understand this, but there is power and there is a sense of closeness when you call someone my son. You can call them by their name, but as soon as you say, this is my son or this is my daughter, there is an intimate relationship because it was born out of two people in love and here is this child. So that's why the idea of son of God is to show the unique relationship that Jesus Christ had with God the Father. Now, with all this put together, we see that this whole letter is talking about this anticipated Messiah that the people were waiting to come and will deliver them. Now, as we look, read verses 2 and 3, let's, let's look at it again really quickly. You will see in verses 2 and 3, he says, as it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, and then he's quoting some Old Testament verses. Like I said, it doesn't mean he never quotes it, but he has less quotations compared to all the other Gospels. But the important thing that I want you to understand is that he takes two Old Testament passages where it's from the prophet Malachi and the prophet Isaiah, and they prophesied about this Jesus or the Messiah that was to come. In Malachi, it refers to God coming in judgment to make all things right for the people. The Isaiah reference, it goes to this idea of preparing the way for the Lord, that there will be someone who will be coming to prepare the way, and then it will restore the people of God to God himself. Now, some, some of you who are probably thinking through this, you'll probably understand that why did he not mention the prophet Malachi? He should have said something like, as it was written by the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Malachi. Now, this is a, little, a literary device that a lot of the writers would do, the, the Jewish writers. You need to understand this. What they would do is this. They would usually take a theme or some kind of topic or even a keyword, and they will coalesce those different passages together as if it's just one. Now, why is that important? Because they assume that everyone knows these prophetic words that were given. So right away, people who knew the Bible, and many of them knew the Old Testament, the Torah. So they knew they were talking about Isaiah. They knew that this person who said this was the prophet Malachi. So that's why even though Malachi is not mentioned, 
we know that both of them wrote this and Mark coalesced those two prophecies together. Now, let's have this unifying theme. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has come and there will be a person who will prepare the way. Now, as I was thinking about this, I said, you know, what a powerful moment this was for many of these Jewish people, and especially for the Gentile believers. They were in darkness, spiritual darkness, for many, many years, four or five hundred some years. But then all of a sudden, we see the prophet, John the Baptist, as we will look at, coming forth and declaring to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, maybe this doesn't really make sense to you, and so I was thinking maybe this will help you. Um, I'm just wondering, how would you feel knowing that something that you've anticipated for so long is coming? Like, if you know anything about hoping for something, if you know anything about wishing for something, and it comes to pass, it's a great feeling. I think the good example is the COVID restrictions. Uh, many of you now believe in new equations. Zero plus three equals hallelujah, right? And so uh, you understand, <laughs> you understand that this long-awaited zero days in quarantine hotel and you just monitor yourself for three days, it's like liberation. This is the day that we've been waiting for. And so that's the kind of feeling that many of these people who are longing for the Messiah to come that's what they felt, sense of joy, elation, knowing that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah from God is here. Now, this is the proclamation of Jesus and how he was going to open a way for us. Let's continue on and read the next four verses and then finish off on this idea of the proclamation of Jesus prepares the way or opens a way for us. This is what it says as we continue. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming the baptism of repentance of the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Just think about this verse. I, I want you to just kind of take it in slowly. So here's John the Baptist, who is the person who is preparing the way for the Lord. John the Baptist is the messenger and the voice that God sent to prepare the way for this Jesus Christ to come into this world. The reason why this is so important is because in the biblical times, before a king would visit one of his areas of his domain, he will always send a messenger ahead of him to go to that city or go to that place and say, hey, the king is coming. Prepare everything for the king to come. Clean up the, the streets because he's going to be coming. Maybe this will help you to understand. It's kind of like when a president comes into a city, like the whole city is anticipating and they clean up and they put red flags all over the place. I mean, we're talking about they are preparing 
for this important person to come. That's the same way. John the Baptist was a person who was going to declare this important person who is going to come, who is the Messiah. Now, when we look at verse 4 and through 8, we see the description of John the Baptist who will be preparing the way for Jesus. So I want to talk a little bit about this. So John the Baptist, so you understand the proclamation of Jesus opens the way for us. The first thing that I want you to notice is the prophetic messenger. Let's look at John. In verses 4 through 6, we notice that John the Baptist was baptizing and proclaiming the forgiveness of sins through the baptism of repentance. Just like what we read in the other Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 3, verse 4, it describes the similar thing. It says this, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now what you need to understand is there is nothing appealing or attractive about John. It's interesting, in verse 5, it says that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. Now, you, you, you could be thinking about this and say, well, what was it about John? Actually, when you read this prophetic messenger, there was nothing special about him. I mean, he was wearing camel's hair, whatever, for his outfit, eating locusts and wild honey. But I think this is the beauty of the gospel. Because I think many times we always look at people who have everything put together. We look at people in their CVs. We look at people in their experience and their background. But all throughout the gospels, you'll see that Jesus always overlooked those people. He was always looking for people who were humble. People who were not necessarily accepted by the in crowd. And that's why as you read the Gospels, you realize he hung around with what? Uh, with whom? Uh, tax collectors, uh, prostitutes, and all those people that everyone frowned upon. But it was those people that saw their need for Jesus Christ. To me, when I think about this, this is a powerful image. That there were many people who heard about this message of repentance and about the kingdom of God that is to come. So they left some of these cities and areas around there and they all went to John the Baptist near the River Jordan to get baptized as they were confessing their sins. So not only do we see this prophetic messenger, but I want you to see the proclaimed message. What was the message? In verses 7 and 8, we notice that the message that John the Baptist gave to his people. Let's go ahead and read verses 7 and 8 again. He says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One of the first things that we notice is John the Baptist's humility. He understood his place and his role when it came to being a messenger and proclaiming who Jesus was. See, John knew that his baptism with water was just a symbolic washing. It was just an external thing, but it symbolizes the forgiveness of sins. But what he was pointing to, what he was proclaiming is, there will be somebody who will be coming after me, whose sandals that I am not worthy to untie, who will baptize you, and then he will give you the Spirit. 
So John's baptism was just a preparation so that people will be ready to put their full trust in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And that's when we see John expressing his unworthiness, even to once again, taking off the master's sandal. I'm unworthy to untie it and take it off. The simple but yet profound message was, there's a greater person who is coming. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how oftentimes you and I, we forget that the spotlight should be on Jesus and not on us. John the Baptist understood this because he knew that he was just the amplification system for the music, but he was not the music. And this is what I want you to understand. This life is not about you. And you will hear this over and over from this pulpit to remind every single one of us it is not about us. We're just the amplification system of the music that God has put into our hearts. Jesus Christ is the music that we declare and we play out to the rest of the world. And we amplify that as we live in holiness. We live in the purposes of God. People are going to be wondering, what is that music that you are listening to? That's why I want to read the Gospel of John in chapter 3, verse 27 through 30 to help us to understand that it's not about us and it's about Jesus Christ. This is a story that John gave about John the Baptist. Listen to what it says here in John chapter 3, verse 27 through 30. It says, John answered, a person cannot receive one, even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, come on, let's say this together. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Let's say this together. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, some of you and many of you will probably have the privilege and the honor of standing in someone's wedding. And I, I always get the best view because here I am with my tablet ready to preach. And you, you could totally tell this man is really nervous. You know, he's just standing there and waiting for the bride. And then the music starts playing and the bride starts walking down the aisle. And it's, you know, it, it's amazing because like no one else really sees her. Well, everyone does see her. But sometimes, because everyone is looking over there, sometimes I would just kind of like smile, you know, and trying to get this guy to smile too because he's really nervous. And so when I'm smiling, this person who's walking down the bride will be smiling. Now, the interesting thing is, in this wedding party, there are also these other dudes. And then there's some, and there's some dudettes, okay? So here they are. They're, they're on this side. And it's really interesting when I see this because... The main focus is the bride and the groom. And so what I need to do is get out of the spotlight so that it could be on them. But also these guys know that it's not about them, but it's about this best friend or one of the best friends and the bride. So try to imagine this for a second. So I'm in position to ready to preach and 
This guy's still nervous. You got all the dudes and you got the dudettes. And here is the bride coming down. As the bride is coming down, and as this guy is ready to, because, you know, he doesn't know whether to hug the father or not, or the father might give him a dirty look, you know, so he's just kind of like really excited, but kind of nervous. And then he comes forward, and guess what? What if someone here, maybe his best man goes, look at me! How do I look at my tux? Or it's like, hey, I need a girlfriend so I can do what you're doing. Think about this for a moment. This is one of the reasons why sometimes some brides would make the women dress up in really nasty color, you know, outfits because she wants to shine. I know it's no one in our church. It's, no, it's those other people, you know, in those other places. When I heard that, I'm like, oh, Lord, have mercy. I, I just heard a lot of different things. But think about it. Think about that situation. All of us would be like, that is so bad because it's not about that guy. It's about this guy and about her as they're coming down. That's why John the Baptist uses this illustration about a bridegroom and the bride. Because you are not going to draw attention to yourself because it's really about the bride and the bridegroom. That's why John says, hey, listen, I'm just the guy who's telling you about someone who's coming. And the main event is Jesus Christ. That's why he says in that last verse, I must decrease and he must increase. Let me give you some other translations to give you a better colloquial understanding of this. Listen to what it says in the Amplified. He must increase, and come on, say this, in prominence, but I must decrease. So he must take up front and center that he has to be the prominent one and not us. Here's another translation. The English contemporary, uh, contemporary English version says, Jesus must become more important while I become less important. It doesn't mean that you don't have any significance in front of God's eyes. No, you do. But it's those people who always have to feel so important and to let themselves be recognized of all the things that they have done. And he says very clearly, I must be, can you go back to that? He says very clearly that Jesus must become more important and I must become less important. The next, another translation is the message translation. Listen to what it says. It says, this is a sign moment for him to what? move into the center while I slip off to the sidelines. I love that. It just, it just helps me to visualize that. Kind of let him be in the center while I just kind of slip away into the sidelines. Because it's not about me. It's all about him. You know, I was thinking, we live in such a narcissistic culture with all the social media, and it's all about us, how we feel, and the more I thought about it, I realized it is so easy to get fooled and to think to ourselves that Jesus came to make so much about us and it's all about us. And I'm telling you right now, it's not. He does love you. He does care for you. But he cares and loves more his, about his glory than anything else. How about us this morning? Do you make it all about you? As soon as you wake up, who do you think about? What do you do? Or is it that everything that we do, is it about Jesus? I'm wondering, are we proclaiming Jesus through our lives? Do we see Jesus as this unique and personal Savior who came 
and gave us life to fulfill God's purposes and God's promise to us. That's why when we study this passage, we've got to understand this proclamation of Jesus Christ is so that it can open up a way for us to experience Him in His glory and His power. Let me close with the second point. The second point is this. Not only the proclamation of Jesus uh, opens the way, but you will see here the preparation of Jesus opens the way. In closing out this section, we see two things that happen when Jesus enters into the scene. Like he literally enters in. There are two things that we see here. The first thing is the event of the baptism. Let's read verse 9 and 10, the actual baptism of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus comes into the scene, into the story, timeline, and we see that he gets baptized by John in the Jordan River. Now, it's important to note that Jesus made no confession of sin because John's baptism was for the confession of sin. But Jesus did not make a confession of sin. Why? Because Jesus was without sin. And this is a complete contrast to all the people who got baptized by John the Baptist because they were sinful, so they had to confess their sin. But here's Jesus, and this is the beautiful part of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, even though he understands and empathizes in our humanity, but he is also different from us. We are sinful. We continue to sin. Jesus is holy and he will never sin. That's why Jesus Christ becomes our perfect sacrifice. We need him to stand in our place because he did something that we could not do for ourselves, which is to live a perfect life. We cannot do it. That's why we need Jesus, because he's the only one that has lived this perfect life and became a perfect sacrifice to God. Let me give you a couple of verses so that you understand this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet what? Without sin. The Bible is clear. Jesus never sinned. First John chapter 3, verse 5 says this. It says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So this baptism was such a powerful event, but we see here that the Spirit came down upon Jesus to empower him for the mission. And it says here, The heavens opened up and the Spirit descended upon Jesus. Now, I hope... If we can go back to verse 10, let's go back to verse 10. I, I want you to notice in verse 10, the phrase being torn open. Do you see that? That phrase being torn open is a very forceful verb, which is used as a metaphor of God literally breaking into human experience to deliver them. So I want you to think about this. That idea of being torn open it's a very forceful verb that talks about God literally entering into your experience, into your life to deliver His people. Let's just pause here and let me challenge you with this. What are you going through right now in your life? Whatever it is that you're facing, 
It could be a situation with your family. It can be a financial situation. It could be a relational situation. It could be just you're thinking about your life and there's no purpose and you're wondering what is going on. Like what we see here in Jesus' baptism, and it says the, the heavens opened up. He tore open the heavens and so that he could enter into our lives. That is the gospel message, that we don't try to reach up to God, but God entered into our world and understood what it is that we're going through, and he meets us there because he loves us and he died on the cross. This idea of breaking forth into existence. I, I love some of these other renderings of the Old Testament idea. Look at Isaiah chapter, um, chapter 64, verse 1. It says, oh, that you would what? Come on, say this. Rend the heavens and come down. That word rend is the idea of breaking or tearing open the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. Here's some different translations of that. Same verse. Oh, that you would what? burst from the heavens and come down, how the mountains will quake. So it's this idea of just rending, the, rend, rending or rendering the heavens, tearing down and will burst from the heavens. Here's another translation. The message it says, all that you will what? Rip open the heavens and descend. Make the mountains stutter at your presence. What a very powerful visual for us. That as soon as Jesus was being baptized, not for the confession of sins, but for the declaration, the preparation that was needed as he was about to do the ministry, the heavens burst open, opened a tore open. Spirit came down and he was empowered to do his ministry. Now the interesting part about this, and hopefully you'll see this, is that the most important part of this baptism was when God the Father spoke to Jesus. The voice came from heaven and God gave his approval and affirmed Jesus' identity and this unique relationship with him. Do you see the phrase to be pleased? Like I am well pleased? If you study this phrase very carefully, it is in the past tense, which indicates that God has always been pleased with his son always been pleased with Jesus at all times. In fact, God's delight and pleasure never had a beginning and it will never end. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about all your relationships with your parents, with friends, with your mentors, with different people in your life. How many times have you made a mistake and you started questioning, are they still committed to me? Do they still love me? Do they still care for me? If you've ever felt that, what it does is a couple things. It produces a lot of shame because you realize I screwed up and you want to hide. Or it causes you to go into this work mindset and try harder. Now, if anyone's married in this room, you know exactly what I'm talking about, husbands. You mess up and you know you're wrong. What do you do? Hey, baby, I'll clean up the kitchen today. You know, let me, let me, let me clean it up. Or like, oh, don't worry about dinner. I, I, I'm going to order and I'm going to bring the... Like, that's just a natural human tendency. You screw up, you're going to try to fix it and make it better. That's a human paradigm. And so here's this idea 
that God says to his son, you are my son whom I love and I am well pleased. And I, that means that I have been pleased with you from the beginning. I have been pleased with you even now and I will be pleased with you forevermore. That is the kind of love that I think every single one of us in this room we desire for. Think about this. How many of us can genuinely say that we have experienced that kind of love here on this earth? If you have, you are very blessed. But I would say most of us, we've experienced a little bit, but not the fullness. This is why God's love is so much different than the love that the world can offer to us. That he's looking at you and saying, my son, my daughter, to whom I have always been pleased with from the moment that you were conceived and born and you entered into this world to the moment even right now, even in those times when you messed up and even into the future, no matter what you do, this, my love for you will not change. That, is, that gives you not only this identity as a son or daughter of God, but it affirms and approves of you. So you don't have to try to find approval from others. Can I just speak to many, I, I, you know, sometimes uh, I, I know that it seems like I'm always picking on a certain group of people. And I, I, I partly do this because I realize it's not just a group of people, it's just a culture. And so we need to speak into culture. There are a lot of good things about the Asian culture. But there are a lot of things that I believe that are not from God. And one of the things that I've noticed about the Asian culture is that there are a lot of people pleasers. Because you grew up most of your life questioning if your mom or dad would love you, especially when you don't do well in school, if you don't do well in that uh, concert or whatever it may be. Your whole life is about performance. That's why everything you're trying to do is trying to please your parents, trying to please other people. And it carries over when you go into school. It carries over when you go into university. It carries over at your workplace. So the context is different, but the issue is the same. And all I'm saying to those of you who struggle with people pleasing and always trying to find approval it's because the core root of it is your identity and what you are longing for is acceptance and approval that no person in this world can give you. That can only come from God. And so if you know the gospel and you understand there is nothing that you have done and if you did anything, you just messed it up because of our sinfulness, that God still looks upon you who loves you and who approves of you. And if you allow that to sink deep into your heart, I'm going to tell you right now, your people pleasing will end instantly. This is how I can tell when someone has deeply experienced this gospel message, not just in their heads, but they experience it in their hearts. I'm not saying you're going to be like, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Woohoo! Live it up. No, I'm not talking about that kind of don't care about what people think. That could be rebellion. That could be your pride. But those things that shake your identity that should be founded only in the gospel, those things that you're trying to find approval from, these people, when what really matters is God and his approval, what he thinks about you. 
When you allow the gospel to go deep into your heart, it will literally transform you from a shy person. You will be outspoken and you will be able to stand for things you believe in. For a person who's always hurt, you're always getting offended about something. You know what? When you understand the gospel, it will no longer offend you. Yeah, you might be like, oh, that's not really smart. That, you know, that wasn't very nice. But you will not be the point where you get angry and bitter. Because it's not their approval that you want. It's God. That's how you know when this gospel message has deeply impacted your life. So not only this event of the baptism is so important because it's about identity, it's about our approval, our unique relationship with God, but you will notice here the experience of temptation. Let's finish off and read these two verses. Listen to what it says. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. We notice right after the baptism, and as, as, as the Holy Spirit came down, as the heavens tore open and it bursted open, as the Holy Spirit came upon him, we see that immediately it was the Spirit that drove him out. Drove him out to the wilderness. Now, if you know your Bible, anything with desert and wilderness, it's not the best place. A lot of times it's connected to disobedience. A lot of times it's connected to uh, evil things. I want you to look at that word drove. Can we go back to that passage again? The spirit immediately, come on, say that word, drove. This is what I like. I love studying words because it helps us to understand. That word drove is the same word as sent, which comes from the original language Ekbalo, and many of you who have been with us, you know that word. That word ekbalo means to drive out, to expel, to compel, to push out, to kick out. So here's John the Baptist. When he sees Jesus, he says, I am unworthy to untie your shoes. But Jesus said, hurry up and baptize me, dude. And as soon as he was baptized, the heavens open up, the Spirit descends upon him, and it says, the Spirit immediately kicked him out. The Spirit immediately drove him out, sent him out. Why is this significant? It is as if God had a purpose behind sending Jesus into the wilderness. What was that purpose? It was to test him. I'm just wondering for yourself, just, just kind of when you think about it, because I was thinking about this for myself. When you think about how many times God sends you out, kicks you out of your comfort zone. L let me put it a different way, more practical so you can understand. Some of you will be like, you know what? I, I, I really love God. I'm a God lover. Jesus means everything to me. Sometimes God says, do you really? Are you even aware of yourself? So what does he do? He tests you. He, he puts you into a situation to really see what you're saying. And a lot of it is just for our own realization. I don't love God the way I think I, I thought I did. 
How about when you say, yeah, I love people? One of the best ways to know that you don't love people is when God sends you unlovable people. That's when you know, I, I really don't love people. Oh, God, I'm going to make you a priority. I trust in you. <laughs> what happens? He will bring a lot of other priorities and see if you could identify which priority is the most important, which is your relationship with him. God, this year, I want to really grow in my relationship with you. Do you really? You haven't been praying. You haven't been reading the word. You haven't been in his presence. You haven't been spending time with people. You haven't been coming out to life group. You haven't been coming out to some of these gatherings. Not to say that coming out to these gatherings, reading the Bible and prayer, that's the only thing. But we're just talking about the things that can feed you, the things that can help you. A lot of times what we say that we believe in, sometimes God kicks us out, sends us, drives us to different places so that he, we will see where our hearts are. In verse 13, we see Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and he was tempted. That word tempted is translated as put to the test, make trial of, is to simply discover what kind of person he was. That's what it means to be tempted or tried. The word tempted is both a good, in a good sense and also a bad sense. Good sense is because God is trying to help us to see what we're made out of. In the bad sense, because Satan entices us to sin. That's how he tests us. And I think the beautiful thing is if you have time to read Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, you'll realize this interchange, uh, this conversation with Jesus and Satan about I'll offer you all these things if you just bow down to worship me. And Jesus, you should not worship any other gods. Turn these bread into stone and says, no. Man shall not live by bread alone. And so what Jesus did was he passed the test. And next week, we're going to look at how now he enters in and starts doing the ministry. I thought the thing that reminded us as we close here is that even though there were wild animals... It was a very hostile environment. God sent angels to minister to Jesus. Once again, God shows his loving care and his loving protection. I'm just wondering for us, have you experienced God trying to refine you through the various circumstances of your life? Some of you are going through that right now. He's trying to purify you. He's trying to make your love for God be pure so there will be no other competing thing in your life except for him and him alone. I think this is pretty much encapsulated in the beauty of this gospel message. See, many of us, we have tried to live this perfect life and we just couldn't. The first person, the human beings on this earth, Adam and Eve, they failed. And after many, many years, thousands of years later, here's Jesus who enters into the scene. And what he's simply doing is that through John the Baptist, there's a proclamation of Jesus, and we see there's this preparation that Jesus was preparing himself to now minister to the whole world. And that is something that God does in us that we cannot do for ourselves. One of the first things you got to simply do is say, God, I need you. Help me in this process. And that's why I want to give us, once again, 
the one thing, and the one thing, once again, as we talked about, it's right up here, that we can live for Jesus each day because He has prepared the way. He has done the heavy lifting. He has died on the cross for us, rose again from the dead so that we can experience life. So what are some practical things? Let me give you a couple, and then we'll close out here. First of all, worship Jesus who is worthy of our worship. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the gospel, the good news. Worship is giving your, all of your attention, your, your, you ascribe worth to the things that you value. I pray that you will become a worshiper, a worshiper of Jesus because of who He is and what He has done for us. That's why it's not just singing a song, but we're worshiping in His presence. It's not we're just going to work or we're just studying. That's a worship unto Jesus because He has given you something you don't deserve. You don't deserve that job. You don't deserve to go to that school. There are people who would love to go to some of these schools, but they don't have the money. They don't have the resources. They don't have the education to even get to college level. But you do. To say, God, I want to worship you through everything that I do because it's all about you. The second thing is this. Walk with Jesus who is worthy of our obedience. Jesus was baptized. He was anointed by God. And then he went into the desert, in the wilderness, and fought off Satan with God's truth. And once again, it's not about us trying harder. Maybe what you need is more of a dependence on God. I want to walk with him. There's different areas of sin and struggles, temptations. My heart is being drawn to some of these things. God, I cannot walk in that direction without you helping me. I need you to lead me to the truth, to the way everlasting. That's why David prayed that prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there's any offensive way of me and then lead me to the way everlasting. And the last thing is this, witness for Jesus who is worthy of our lives. I pray that as you fall in love with Jesus more and more to realize who he is, what he means to you, I pray that people around you will say, man, Jesus must be really important in your life. If you haven't heard that, then I think we need to pause and think through this a little bit. When someone or something is worthy, we give all of our attention, we sacrifice towards it, for it, we live according to it, and I pray that people will be able to see that in us more than going to life group, more than doing all this churchy stuff. It's about our relationship with Jesus Christ. And it is that that people will see and they will witness. And then we will witness through our lives that Jesus Christ is worthy of our lives to sacrifice and to give and to serve Him. I don't know how many of you know Mark Burnett and Roma Downey. Uh, those of you who don't know, it's good to get to know them who they are, you can, you can look it up later. But they're known as the Hollywood's noisiest Christian, noisiest Christians, because they're very vocal about their faith in Hollywood, in a place that is so anti-God, anti-religion, anti-everything that is moral and righteous. Now, those of you who might not know how popular they are, uh, Mark uh, Burnett, 
He is the producer for The Apprentice, The Shark Tank, The Survivor series, as well as the executive producer for The Voice. So this guy's a pretty big dude. And back in 2014, they produced a movie called Son of God. And it was pretty much the life of Jesus. And sometimes you can read the Bible and you understand it intellectually, but sometimes when you see it visually, it helps you to realize he did all that. He did all those miracles. He did come. He did fight Satan for us. He did live the perfect life that we couldn't live, but he lived it for us. And that's when you get humbled and you realize, man, Jesus is really worthy of all my worship. He's worthy of my life and surrendering my life to him. And I pray that as we do this whole series on the book of Mark, and the title is simply Witness, that we will witness something great about Jesus every single week, and that we will witness for him in our workplaces, in our schools, with our families, wherever we go, we'll witness about the greatness of who he is. What I wanted to do is I wanted to show you like a two-minute trailer of this movie, Son of God. And in this trailer, it just captures small little scenes that this whole movie shows. But it's a trailer, so it's just a snippet about the person of Jesus Christ that the book of Mark talks about. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into this world, who was baptized, fought temptation and sin, and overcame. Let's watch this together. Let's stand together as we close out. Can I just speak to some of you who have been a Christian for a long time? Some of you who have been a Christian for a very long time. You've been to church most of your life. You've heard all these stories before. And I think sometimes it's not really a blessing, but actually a curse. Because you heard these stories while you were young. Like Jesus Christ is not this fresh, person that you've met for the very first time. It's just something that you've heard over and over again. I think more than anyone else, you are the one that needs to meet Jesus once again. You're the one that I talked about earlier that you need to fall deeper in love with him. Develop a more of a gospel understanding. And learning how to devote yourself and your life to the things of the kingdom of God. I think one of the first things you got to do is just repent and say, God, sorry for taking things for granted. I've taken a granted of, I haven't seen it as a privilege, but I've taken for granted that you were just always there. Maybe what you need to pray for is, God, show yourself to me today. Show yourself to me throughout this whole series that we're doing. May I find something new about Jesus that I didn't know before. May I encounter him in a way that maybe I've never encountered him before.
And then there's some of you who have fallen away. And I'm going to say this to you, and I, you know, I fell away in my journey with Christ over the years. I've talked to many, many people who have fallen away. And one of the things I realized is, well, a couple things that come to mind. Whenever I counsel people, think about my own life, I would say that there's some kind of deceit that's going on in your life. Something that Satan has whispered, something that you have gone through, that Satan has like spoken to you in a way that you just believe it. It could range anything from you're not good enough to, or how can God really forgive you for this to like, yeah, go chase after your dream because it's all about you. There's some kind of deceit in your life that's pulling you away from the very Savior and the Messiah that could change you. Another thing is this, when I think about those who have fallen away, is that you have no longer allowed Him to sin at the throne of your heart, but you have decided that you're going to be God. And that's why it's the same for you. You need to repent and say, God, I realize, just like the, the younger son, the prodigal son, I've squandered all these things, Lord. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Repent for that deceit and lies that you believed in, the lack of faith. Ask God to give me this faith that I need. And then there's a third group in here where you have yet to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Some of you have been coming out to life group. Some of you have been coming out to church. Some of you might have even gone to a Christian school without being a believer. And you've heard all the stories about Jesus. And somewhere along the line, the last couple weeks or so, maybe things are slowly starting to crystallize and you realize, you know what? If I were to die tonight, I won't be certain that I will go to eternity, spend the rest of eternity with Christ. Some of you will start to realize, is this why Christ came into this world? To not only fulfill His purposes on this earth, but to save a sinner like me so that I could have hope in Him and Him alone. If that's you, I want to challenge us to be able to just confess your need for Him. Say sorry, Lord, for all the things I've done. And then I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose again from the dead. And I don't know what this Christian life looks like, but I just want to live my life for you out of gratitude of all that you have done, my sins forgiven, that you have approved of me, you have delighted in me. And if that's your heart, you say that prayer, and I'm telling you right now, the Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. I know it's scandalous because you just have to confess that, but that's the beauty of the gospel. There's nothing you can do and nothing you need to do besides believe, trust. And if you trust Him, your life will never be the same. I'm going to ask us if we could just bow our heads for a moment. And I'm going to ask us, in the quietness of this moment here, I want you to talk to God. Talk to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, God who saves. Christ, who is the Anointed One, the Messiah, who came into this world. And through John, prepare the way for this proclamation 
and the preparation so that we can have this life that God has offered to us. It is a life that will never be the same. It will change us deep within. It is a life worth living. It is a life worth giving yourself to. And I pray that you will experience that. So Heavenly Father, I pray right now through the power of your Holy Spirit that you'll speak to every single one of us. Wherever we are, whether we have just kind of been dead in our faith because we've heard these stories before, or God, we have fallen away, or God, maybe some of us, we have never received you as Lord and Savior. And God, we give our allegiance to you for the very first time, wherever we may be, as we're communicating with you. Hear us, O Lord, and pour out your grace. There is no other name than the name of Jesus Christ under heaven in which we must be saved. And I just pray, God, that we will cry out that name, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. Can I just give us about 45 seconds to a minute? I want you to pray. Talk with Jesus. Let him know your heart. I want to know you more this coming year. I want to receive you for the first time. I want to come back humbly because there's no one greater. Go ahead and just communicate. Well, let's, let's just lift our voices, God. Can we do that? Let's just begin to pray. Fill this room with prayer. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.